Well, uh, Jesus has just completed another teaching section in the book of Matthew, and now we go back to another narrative section, and we pick up with the story uh, about John the Baptist and his unexpected end. And that can be found on Matthew, or sorry, on page number 1519. And our verses this morning will be uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as always, we need your spirit to take your word and apply it to our hearts. We ask humbly again this morning that you would do just that, that we might understand more about your son and what he's done to come and save us from our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John the Baptist is one of the most interesting characters, I think, in the entire book of Matthew. Uh, we first meet him back in John chapter, th- or sorry, Matthew chapter 3, when he's living in the wilderness, uh, wearing a leather belt, eating locusts and honey. He's got disciples following him. He's drawing large crowds out to hear him preach. And his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And for those who repent, he baptizes them. And before Jesus begins his public ministry, he goes out to John to be baptized so that he can fulfill all righteousness, as we're told. And then in chapter 4, right as Jesus begins to teach and to heal and to begin his ministry, we find out that John has been put in prison, but we're just told that. We're not told why. And then sometime later, in Matthew chapter 11... We hear about John again. He's still in prison. Meanwhile, Jesus is busy performing miracles and healing and teaching, demonstrating the kind of power that would make someone think that he could easily get John out of prison if he wanted. But for some reason, Jesus just leaves John there. And it's actually hard to describe just how strange that is but I'm going to try. 
So in Matthew 11, Jesus calls John the greatest person ever born up until that point in time. He also tells us in Matthew 11 that John fulfills a prophecy, a prophecy about John being the one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Later in Matthew 17, Jesus tells us that uh, John is Elijah who was to come. And we'll talk more about what that means when we get to Matthew 17. But Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. So, according to Jesus, John is the greatest person ever born. He's God's messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And he's someone who is at least comparable to Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like somebody we need to break out of prison. In fact, most organizations would put the entire operation on hold until a guy like that is broken out and freed because he's clearly essential to whatever it is that Jesus is doing. But that's not what happens. In our passage this morning, Matthew takes a moment to fill us in on what has happened to John the Baptist since last we heard about him. But first, and here's our outline this morning, uh, we're going to take some time to ask ourselves, who are the Herods? Um, and we're going to get a little background on these characters because it's important in understanding this story. And when we do, we're going to find out that, that, that they're more bizarre and that this story is more interesting than we even thought it was. Um, then next, we're going to ask ourselves how John the Baptist died, and finally, why John the Baptist died. So who are the Herods? Well, uh, we met Herod the Great back in chapter 2 of Matthew. He was the illegitimate biracial king uh, who was appointed king of Israel by the Romans. Uh, he was the one who was so threatened by Jesus that he killed every male child in and around Bethlehem two years old and younger. And Herod the Great died, we're told in Matthew 2, while Jesus was still very young. And when Herod died, his kingdom was divided into three parts. Uh, there was a southern part where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were, and that was given to Herod Archelaus, one of his sons. And then the northeastern part of the kingdom was given to uh, Philip, one of his other sons. And then the region of Galilee, where Jesus grew up, was given to Herod Antipas, another one of his sons. Um, and so we're told in the beginning of our passage that at that time Herod, and that's referring to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And this phrase, at that time, uh, it's, it's more of a general phrase. It, it means meanwhile. What Matthew's doing here is he's saying, look, everything else I've been telling you, while all that's been going on, there's this other thing that's happened that I need to tell you about. And Herod Antipas, we're told, was also a tetrarch, uh, which literally means ruler of a fourth part. It's a name used uh, to describe petty, small-time rulers. And Herod, of course, thought of himself as a king, um, as most 
petty, small-time rulers tend to do. The other characters we hear about in this story are uh, Herod's brother, Philip, uh, Herodias, Herod's new wife, who was married to Herod's brother, Philip, and Herodias's daughter. Now, I am going to do my best to explain this family to you, but if you have trouble keeping up with all these connections, uh, I just want you to know that what I'm trying to describe to you here is a family that is both dysfunctional and incestuous. So if you have trouble keeping up with all the details of the interrelatedness, all you need to really walk away with is that this family is very messed up. Um, so Philip, Herod's brother, and Herodias's ex-husband is not the Philip who took over the northeastern part of the kingdom after Herod the Great died. Herod the Great had two sons from different wives, both named Philip, okay? Um, and Herodias is actually Philip and Herod Antipas's niece. So she's the daughter of their other half-brother, Aristobulus, okay? Which means that Herodias was married to her uncle Philip, and she divorced him to marry her other uncle Antipas. It gets worse. Herodias' daughter is named Salome, and when this story takes place, Salome is probably 12 to 14 years old. And, and Salome, who was both Herod's niece and now his stepdaughter, she eventually marries her great-uncle Philip. Not her grandfather, but the other Philip, who is, is named the same thing as her grandfather. And so when she marries her great-uncle, she becomes her mother's aunt and sister-in-law all at the same time. It's funny and sad. And the question really is, though, why is this important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, Matthew's original audience would have known all of this immediately. This was the tabloid knowledge of the day. The other reason this is important is because this is the family that is leading God's people at the time of Jesus. This is the family that God has given power, although limited by the Romans, and authority. And remember, according to Jesus, up until this point in time, John is the greatest person who ever lived. John is the Old Testament figure predicted who would come and who would prepare the way of the Lord. He is Elijah who is to come. And so if anybody deserves to die and have their power taken from them, all of us would agree that it should be Herod and his family long before John the Baptist. So, how did John the Baptist die? Well, in our passage, we learn right away that John is dead. And the reason we know John is dead is because Matthew tells us that Herod hears the reports about Jesus. And Herod's explanation to himself is, well, this must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. And when he came back from the dead, he somehow had all these extra powers. This is what it says. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. 
That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, John himself never actually performed a single miracle. He was a prophet. He was a preacher. He baptized people who repented of their sins, but he never performed a miracle. And so Herod's reaction here to the news about Jesus tells us, well, it tells us that Herod has bad theology and a guilty conscience. The Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. But they certainly didn't believe that rising from the dead ever gave somebody miraculous powers. This is why, this is why it's so important for us to study our Bible and to study theology. Uh, the word theology simply means knowledge of God, which means everybody has theology. The question is whether it's good theology or bad theology. And so if we don't study theology, if we don't put in effort to know God as he's actually revealed himself, we end up like Herod. With theology that's a mix between what the Bible actually teaches, stuff we made up, or stuff that we've sort of imbibed from our culture. And that kind of theology, as we see here with Herod, has no power to deal with a guilty conscience. And so now that Matthew's informed us that John is dead, he goes into a flashback to tell us how John died. We read in verses 3 and 4. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And so when we read this, we might think John is calling Herod out for the divorce because he's married, or because he's married to his niece. But surprisingly, Scripture doesn't forbid marrying one's niece. And since Herod was married to a pagan Arab princess, his divorce might even have been lawful. No, John is calling Herod out because he married his brother's wife. Leviticus 18.16 says this, Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Leviticus 20.21 20, says, If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless. So Herod and Herodias were breaking a clear command of God by marrying each other, because Herodias was married to Herod's brother. And as a ruler in Israel, Herod had the responsibility to honor God's law. And John's in prison because he was willing and courageous enough to tell Herod and Herodias that what they were doing is wrong. Now, Herod didn't like it one little bit, and so he had John arrested, but we're told he didn't kill him. It says in verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. And then one night, on Herod's birthday, he's having a drunken party, possibly as a birthday gift from his wife, his young teenage niece, stepdaughter, princess, is invited to dance for them. And Matthew tells us, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath 
to give her whatever she asked. And so we're starting to see this picture come together of just how foolish and impulsive this man is. He's drunk, he's weak, he's insecure, and here he is trying to impress all of his dinner guests as if he's this great king with inexhaustible resources that he's somehow going to give this girl whatever she asks for. And she's obviously young enough that she has to talk to her mother about what she should ask for, which makes whatever just happened in that room with those men even more shameful. And then we read, prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. So the greatest man who'd ever lived up until that point in time, the messenger of God sent to prepare the way of the Lord, a prophet like Elijah, killed unceremoniously by a wicked woman and her weak husband simply because he was willing to tell them that God disapproved of their sin. And notice in verse 9, we're told that the king was distressed about killing John. That word distressed means this. It's, a, it, it's a, to have regrets about something in the sense that one wishes it could be undone to be very sorry. Now, if you remember earlier, Herod wanted to kill John, but he didn't because he was afraid of the people. And here now, he regrets killing him, but he did it anyway because he was afraid of taking back his oath in front of his dinner guests. So this is a man who doesn't even know what he wants, and he's afraid of everyone. When Mark tells us the story, we get a little more insight into how conflicted Herod really is about John's death. Mark tells us that uh, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So here's this weak, impulsive, foolish, insecure man who was bugged by John enough to arrest him, and on one level, he wanted him dead, but on, on another level, he knew that John was righteous and holy. He even liked to listen to John talk, so much so that he was distressed when he cornered himself into having John killed. And I wonder, personally, if Herod was afraid to admit how much he liked John. I wonder if Herod knew in his heart of hearts that John was right about his sin. And maybe he even felt guilty and convicted by John. But instead of taking back his oath, which would have been the right thing to do, and it actually would have been easy to do. If you just picture the scenario, you can imagine Herod hearing the request from the girl to have John killed and him saying, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And the dinner guest saying like, oh, okay, where's the wine? They wouldn't have cared. But he's so, he's so insecure, and he so wants to puff out his chest that he corners himself into killing a man that he didn't really want to kill 
He crumbles under his own perceived social pressure. And that's how John the Baptist dies. At the hands of a weak man, too afraid of everyone to do what he knows is right. So why did John the Baptist die? Well, in some ways, the surface-level answer is very easy. John died because he was willing to call sin, sin. He was willing to stand up to leaders who are openly and shamelessly breaking God's law. And we should all be just as bold in naming immorality and injustice in our leaders, both in our government and in the church, as John is here. However, in saying that, uh, this is one of those points that I actually struggled with the most in this passage, because our culture actually likes to call people out. Our culture likes to cancel people. We love to point out when we think somebody else is sinning. Someone might even think they're being just like John the Baptist by standing up to power. So here's some guidelines, I think, that we need to think about before we boldly name immorality and injustice in our leaders. First, we must name immorality and injustice according to the law of God and not our own standards. We must name immorality and injustice according to the law of God and not our own standards. See, John the Baptist is calling Herod and Herodias out for breaking a clear command of God. He's not calling them out because of a debatable political opinion. He's not calling them out because he thinks he knows their motives somehow. Second, we must not have contempt for our leaders who are sinning. If we are going to boldly name sin in another person, we do so knowing that we are sinners too. And as Christians, we are called to name sin as sin because we love people and because they're enslaved to it and we want them to be free and because we love the people who are influenced and confused by it when their leaders sin. So two low-hanging examples, right? One side likes to um, condemn Donald Trump because he is an adulterer and he's immoral. But when they do, I wonder, do they love him? Do they love him? Do they see a man who is caught and enslaved in sin? And then do they love the people who are confused by that? By having a leader live that way? Or, or is it self-righteous? Is it, is it contempt for him? The other side would be Joe Biden, right? Here's a man who openly promotes policies that lead to the death of innocent children in their mother's womb. Do we love him? Do we love Joe Biden as an image bearer of God? And do we pray for him, for his heart to change? Do we love the people who are confused by, by a man who, who says he's a Catholic, but then promotes these policies? You see how, how our hearts ought to be hearts that love the person 
and that love the people who are confused by their leadership. And finally, we must be willing to name sin in our own tribe. When John calls out Herod, he's doing so at great personal cost to himself. And so in all the cancel culture, all the calling out, I, 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 all I see is people calling each other out in other tribes. Right? No one wants to call out anyone in their own tribe because, well, then our tribe might not be as strong. Okay. I say all that because I think since John the Baptist was holy and righteous, I believe he loved Herod Antipas. I think he loved Herodias. And he knew that God was the one who had placed them in their positions of power. And I get the sense that Herod knew John loved him. Herod wasn't willing to change because Herod was also a tangled ball of conflicting desires and impulses, afraid of everyone always doing what felt best in the moment. So on the surface level, the obvious reason John died is because he got caught up with a weak, wicked man with no values and no self-control. But as the greatest person who ever lived, as the man prophesied in the Old Testament to prepare the way of the Lord, as Elijah who was to come, in light of all that, John's death seems very random, very anticlimactic, bizarre, and meaningless. What purpose could it possibly serve for this great man to be in prison throughout almost the entire story of Jesus' life and then die because a weak man and his wicked wife had a grudge? A man as great as John should not die a death like that. I recently watched a movie uh, called Greater. I don't know if you've seen this movie. I was home, it, was, it was last February, and I was homesick, and my wife was gone. And I tried to find a movie, and it's always like, well, I want to watch a movie that's like, you know, good. You know, and then I found this movie called Greater. It's about this man named Brandon Burlesworth. And uh, he was raised in, I think, Arkansas uh, to a single mom. His dad was an alcoholic. Uh, he was overweight, undersized, and uh, he wanted to play football for the Arkansas Razorbacks. And that's a great college football team. Most of you probably know that. Anyway, he didn't get uh, uh, recruited by the Arkansas Razorbacks. He, ha he became a walk-on. Uh, but through his hard work and his dedication, he earned a starting spot on the offensive line, eventually earning a scholarship, and then eventually getting drafted in the third round by the Indianapolis Colts. And I remember thinking, like, wow, this is a great story. This is so amazing. Wow. Eleven days after he got drafted, he's driving from college on a Saturday night home to take his mom to church the next day, and he dies in a head-on collision. And I didn't know who Brandon Burlesworth was. I, I watched this movie, and when, when that, hap that moment came in the movie, I was just as floored by it as, as if it had actually happened in real life. 
Because I thought, why, God? Why? Here's this man who, who's on the verge of his dreams coming true, financial security, buying his mom a house, all these wonderful things. And then he just dies. It seems so random and meaningless. Why does God allow evil people like the Herods to kill a holy and righteous man like John the Baptist? Why does God allow sincere and godly men like Brandon Burlesworth, with their whole life in front of them, to have it cut short? And every single one of us could think of things in our own lives or things that we know about that seem just as tragic and meaningless, and we can't help but wonder why. Our passage closes this way. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is what we do. We take the victim. We honor their life and their body by burying it. And then we go and tell Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer. This is faith. But we actually know exactly why John the Baptist died this way. We may not know why Brandon Burlesworth died the way he did, but we know exactly why John the Baptist died this way, and we've actually been saying it all morning. You see, the reason John died like he did is because he came to prepare the way of the Lord. John died a random, bizarre, meaningless death at the hands of a weak, insecure ruler with conflicting desires and impulses, too afraid of everyone to make the right decision because that's exactly how Jesus would die. Jesus died because he called out the religious authorities for making up laws and burying God's people under them and then lowering God's actual standards to convince themselves that somehow they could keep all of God's law perfectly and then going around and demanding that all of God's people keep all of his laws perfectly, never teaching them about grace. John prepared the way for Jesus by preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, by attracting crowds and teaching disciples and then dying a bizarre, random death. But his death wasn't meaningless. It was full of purpose because John's death prepared the way of the Lord. And Jesus' death was anything but meaningless. Jesus, his death was ordained by God from before the foundation of the world. His death made a way for all of us to have our sins forgiven, to have the curtain torn so we could enter the presence of God. We could live this life knowing that we're right with God, that we're children of God, and that we'll spend eternity with God. And John's death is dripping with purpose because it's pointing us to Jesus. It's showing us that the way to victory is through defeat. And so, when we consider our own lives, when we consider the, the tragedies and the randomness and the meaninglessness and the head-scratchingness of all the things that we go through and all the things that we experience, the sadness of everything, we can know 
We can know that it is dripping with purpose and meaning. Every bit as much as John's death was dripping with purpose and meaning. All of our tragedies and struggles do as well. And we may not know how or why they point to Jesus, but we can know that it does. We can bury the body and we can tell Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that it's easier to know this truth is true than it is to feel this truth is true. So I pray, Father, that you would give us grace and faith to look at the struggles and the randomness and the meaninglessness of of some of the things that happen to us or to those we love. Help us to trust that as bizarre and meaningless as John's death seemed, that it has purpose, that it has meaning, that it has richness and greatness because it points to Jesus and helps us understand that he has come and saved us from our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.